Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy, and tonight we'll be diving into the supporting documents of my presentation on the Philadelphia Experiment. If you are listening to this episode before listening to part one of my coverage on the Philadelphia Experiment, that's perfectly fine. But I would recommend that you actually listen to this one after part one. This recording is strictly for me to read the documents mentioned in part one, word for word, so that you can be familiar with exactly what I am referring to. You can absolutely skip this episode, and you will be able to understand all of part one just fine. So if that is something that you would rather do, go and check out part one now, before I get going. And for all of those that are here for the documents, let's jump right in. Welcome, travelers, to part 0.5 of my coverage on the Philadelphia Experiment. And welcome back to Infinite Rabbit Hole. Now, the very first documents that we reach in part one of my coverage of the Philadelphia Experiment are the Alande letters. Now, the very first one that I refer to, nobody has a copy of. That just isn't out for the public to, to read. But the two after that, the ones that are known as the first and second Alande letters, are. So I have right here in my hands the first two Alande letters. Now. They're long, so hang tight, and forgive me, travelers. It's definitely going to sound like I don't know how to read, because a lot of this is just very, very strange stuff. But either way, these are the words as they were written by Carlos Miguel Alande, and I hope you enjoy. Alande Letter 1 My dear Dr. Jessup, your invocation to the public that they move en masse upon their representatives and have thusly enough pressure placed at the right and sufficient number of places where from a law-demanding research into Dr. Albert Einstein's unified field theory may be enacted, 1925-27, is not at all necessary. It may interest you to know that the good doctor was not so much influenced in his retraction of that work by mathematics, as he most assertedly was by humanics. His later computations, done strictly for his own edification and amusement, upon cycles of human civilization and progress, compared to the growth of Mon's general overall character, was enough to horrify him. Thus, we are told today that the theory was incomplete. Dr. B. Russell asserts privately that it is complete. He also says that man is not ready for it and shan't be until after World War III. Nevertheless, results of my friend Dr. Franklin Reno were you. These were a complete recheck of that theory, with a view to any and every possible quick use of it, if feasible in a very short time. There were good results as far as a group of math recheck and as far as a good physical result to boot, yet the Navy fears to use this result. The result was and stands today as proof that the unified fuel theory, to a certain extent, is correct. Beyond that certain extent, no person in his right senses, or having any senses at all, will evermore dare to go. I am sorry that I misled you in my previous missive. True enough, such a form of levitation has been accomplished as described. It is also a very commonly observed reaction of certain metals of certain fields surrounding a current, this field being used for that purpose. Had Faraday concerned himself about the mag field surrounding an electric current, we today would not exist, or if we did exist, 
our present geopolitical situation would not have the very time bombish ticking off towards destruction atmosphere that now exists. All right, all right. The result was complete invisibility of a ship, destroyer type, and all of its crew. While at sea October 1943, the field was effective in an oblate spheroidal shape extending 100 yards more or less due to lunar position and latitude out from each beam of the ship. Any person within that sphere became vague and form, but he too observed those persons on board the ship as though they too were of the same state, yet were walking upon nothing. Any person without that sphere could see nothing save the clearly defined shape of the ship's hole in the water, providing, of course, that the person was just close enough to see it, just barely outside of the field. Why tell you now? Very simple. If you choose to go mad, then you would reveal this information. Half of the officers and the crew of that ship are, at present, mad as hatters. A few are even yet confined to certain areas where they may receive trained scientific aid when they either go blank or go blank and get stuck. Going blank is not at all an unpleasant experience to healthy, curious sailors. However, it is when also they get stuck that they call it hell. Incorporated. The man thusly stricken cannot move of his own volition unless two or more of those are within the field go and touch him quickly else he freezes. If a man freezes, his position must be marked out carefully and then the field is cut off. Everyone but that frozen man is able to move to appreciate apparent solidity again. Then the newest member of the crew must approach the spot where he will find the frozen man's face or bare skin that is not covered by usual uniform clothing. Sometimes it takes only an hour or sometimes all night and all day long, and worse, it once took six months to get the man unfrozen. This deep freeze was not psychological. It is the result of a hyperfield that is set up. Within the field of the body, while the scorch field is turned on, and this at length or upon a old hand. A highly complicated piece of equipment had to be constructed in order to unfreeze those who became true froze, or deep freeze subjects. Usually a quote-unquote deep freeze man goes mad, stark raving, gibbering, running mad, if his freeze is far more than a day in or time. I speak of time for deep frozen men are not aware of time as we know it, they are like semi-comatose person who live breathe, look, and feel, but are still unaware of so utterly many things as to constitute a netherworld to them. A man in an ordinary common freeze is aware of time, sometimes acutely so, yet they are never aware of the time precisely as you or I are aware of it. The first deep freeze, as I said, took six months to rectify. It also took over five million dollars worth of electric equipment and a special ship berth. If around or near the Philadelphia Navy Yard, you see a group of sailors in the act of putting their hands upon a feller or upon thin air, observe the digits and appendages of the stricken man. If they seem to waver as though within a heat mirage, go quickly and put your hands upon him. For that man is the very most desperate of men in the world. Not one of those men ever want to all to become again invisible. I do not think that much more need be said as to why man is not ready for force field work. Eh? 
You will hear phrases from these men such as caught in the flow or the push, or stuck in the green or stuck in molasses, or I was going fast. These refer to some of the decade later after effects of force field work. Caught in the flow describes exactly the stuck in molasses sensation of a man going into a deep freeze or plane freeze. Either of the two, caught in, push, can either refer to that which a man feels briefly when he is either about to inadvertently go blank, i.e. become invisible, or about to get stuck in a deep freeze or plane freeze. There are only a very few of the original experimental DE's crews left by now, sir. Most went insane. One just walked through his quarters while in sight of his wife and child and two other crew members was never seen again. Two went into the flame, i.e. they froze and caught fire. While carrying common small boat compasses, one man carried the compass and caught fire. The other came for the laying on of ham, as he was the nearest, but he too took fire. They burned for 18 days. The faith in hand laying died when this happened and men's minds went by the scores. The experiment was a complete success. The men were complete failure. Check Philadelphia papers for a tiny one paragraph upper half of sheet inside the paper near the near third of paper, 1944 to 1946 in spring or fall or winter, not summer, of an item describing the sailors' actions after their initial voyage. They raided a local to the Navy Yard gin mill or beer joint and caused such shock and paralysis of the waitresses that little comprehensible could be gotten from them. Save that paragraph and the writer of it does not believe it and says, I only wrote what I heard and them dames is daffy, so all I get is a hide it bedtime story. Check observer ship's crew. Atson Lines Liberty ship out of Norfolk. Company may have ship's logs for the voyage or coast guard habit. The SS Andrew Furseth, chief mate Mosley, will secure captain's name later. Ship's log has crew list on it. One crew member, Richard Price or Splicey, Price may remember other names of deck crewmen. Coast Guard has record of sailors issued papers. Mr. Price was 18 or 19 then, October 1943, and lives or lived at the time in his old family home in Roanoke, Virginia, a small town with a small phone book. These men were witnesses. The men of this crew, not only in New England, maybe Boston, may have witnessed, but I doubt it. Spelling may be incorrect. Did witness this. I ask you to do this bit of research simply that you may choke on your own tongue when you remember what you have appealed be made law. Very disrespectfully yours, Carl M. Allen. P.S. Will help more if you see where I can. Z416175. A few days later, now, this is where he continues his letter, so he must have written the very first part of the first letter one day, and then the second part another day. Um, Alright, we'll just jump right in here. Notes in addition to and pertaining to missive, contact Rear Admiral Rawson Bennett for verification of info herein, Navy Chief of Research. He may offer you a job, ultimately. Coldly and analytically speaking, without the howling that is in the letter you, to you accompanying this, 
I will say the following in all fairness to you and to science. One, the Navy did not know that the men could become invisible, while not upon the ship and under the field's influence. Two, the Navy did not know that there would be men die from odd effects of hyperfield within or upon field. Three, further, they even yet do not know why this happened and are not even sure that the F within F is the reason for sure at all. In short, the atomic bomb didn't kill the experimenters, thus the experiments went on. But eventually one or two were accidentally killed, but the cause was known as to why they died. Myself, I feel that something pertaining to the small boat compass triggered off the flames. I have no proof, but neither does the Navy. Four, worse, and not mentioned when one or two of their men, visible within the field to all the others, just walked into nothingness, and nothing could be felt, or of them, either when the field was turned or off, they were just gone. Then, more fears were amassed. Five, worse yet, when an apparently visible and new man just walked seemingly through the wall of his house, the surrounding area searched by all men and thoroughly scrutinized by and with and under, installed portable field developer and nothing ever found of him. So many, many fears were by then in effect that the sum total of them all could not ever again be faced by any of those men or by the men working at and upon the experiments. I wish to mention that somehow, also, the experimental ship disappeared from the Philadelphia dock and only a very few minutes later appeared at its other dock in the Norfolk, Newport News, Portsmouth area. This was distinctly and clearly identified as being that place, but the ship then again disappeared and went back to its Philadelphia dock in only a very few minutes or less. This was also noted in the newspaper, but I forgot what paper I read it in or when it happened, probably late in the experiments. It may have been 1946, after experiments were discontinued. I cannot say for sure. To the Navy, this whole thing was so impractical due to its morale-blasting effects, which were so much so that efficient operation of the ship was drastically hindered, and then after this occurrence, it was shown that even the mere operation of a ship could not be counted upon at all. In short, ignorance of this thing bred such terrors of it that on the level of attempted operations, with what knowledge was then available, it was deemed as impossible, impractical, and too horrible. I believe that had you then been working upon and with the team that was working upon this project, with yourself knowing what you now know, that the flames would not have been so unexpected. Or such a terrifying mystery. Also more than likely, I must say, in all fairness, none of these other occurrences could have happened without some knowledge of their of their possibility of occurring, in fact, they may have even been prevented by a far more cautious program and by a much more cautiously careful selection of personnel for ships, officers, and crew. Such was not the case that the Navy used whatever human material was at hand, without much, if any, thought as to character and personality of the material. If care, great care is taken in selection of ship and officers and crew, and if careful indoctrination is taken along with careful watch over articles of apparel 
such as rings, watches, and identification bracelets, and belt buckles, plus and especially the effect of a hobnailed shoes or cleated shoes, U.S. Navy issue shoes, I feel that some progress towards dissipating the fear-filled ignorance surrounding this project will be most surely and certainly accomplished. The records of the U.S. Maritime Service House Norfolk, Virginia, for graduated seamen of their schools, will reveal who was assigned to SS Andrew Furuseth for month of either late September or October 1943. I remember positively at one other observer who stood beside me when tests were going on. He was from New England. Brown, blonde curly hair, blue eyes. Don't remember name. I leave it up to you to decide if further work shall be put into this or not. And write this in hopes there will be. Very sincerely, Carl M. Allen. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So that is the, the first of the Alante letters. I apologize if it sounds like I don't know how to read. I will say one thing. This this gentleman, Carlos Alande, he puts punctuation in very weird places, underlines really weird things, makes certain things very bold, capitalizes words in the middle of sentences that don't need to be capitalized for any any way, shape, or form. Uh, and it is just a very, very difficult read. The next one is about the same length, maybe a little bit shorter. We'll go ahead and jump right into it now. But this is the second Alande letter. Or actually, it's the third one, commonly known as the second one. Dear Mr. Jessup, Having just recently gotten home from my long travels around the country, I find that you had dropped me a card. You asked that I write you at once, and so after taking everything into consideration, I have decided to do so. You asked me for what is tantamount to positive proof of something that only duplication of those devices that produced this phenomenon could ever give you, at least were I of scientific bent. I presume that were I of such a curiosity about something, the which has been produced from a theory that was discarded 1927 as incomplete. I am sure that I would be of such a dubiousness that I would have to be shown those devices that produce such a curious interaction of forces and fields. In operation and their product, Mr. Jessup, I could never possibly satisfy such an attitude. The reason being that I could not, nor ever would the Navy Research Department, then under the present boss of the Navy, Burke, ever let it be known that any such thing was ever allowed to be done. For you see, it was because of Burke's curiosity and willingness and prompting that this experiment was enabled to be carried out. I proved a white elephant, but his attitude towards advanced and ultra-advanced types of research is just the thing that put him where he is today, or at least, to be sure, it carries a great weight. Were the stench of such an experiment results ever to come out, he would be crucified." However, I have noticed that through the ages, 
Those who have had this happen to them, once the vulgar passions and caused the reaction have called off and further research openly carried on, that these crucified ones achieve something akin to sainthood. You say that this is the greatest importance. I disagree with you, Mr. Jessup. Not just wholeheartedly, but vehemently. However, at the same time, your ideas and your own sort your own sort of curiosity is that of mine own sort and besides my disagreement is based upon philosophical morality and not upon the curiosity which drives science so rapidly i can be of some positive help to you and myself but to do so would require a hypnotist sodium pentanol a tape recorder and an excellent typist secretary in order to produce material of real value to you as you know one who is hypnotized cannot lie, and one who is both hypnotized and given truth serum, as it is colloquially known, could not possibly lie at all. To boot, my memory would be thus enabled to remember things that my present consciousness cannot recall at all, or only barely and uncertainly, that it would be of far greater benefit to use hypnosis. I could thus be enabled to not only recall complete names, but also addresses and telephone numbers, and perhaps the very important Z numbers of those sailors whom I sailed with, them, or even came in contact with. I could too, being something of a dialectician, be able to thusly talk exactly as those witnesses talked and imitate or illustrate their mannerisms and habitats of thought. Thus your psychologists can figure and advance the surfire method of dealing most successfully with these. I could not do this with someone with whom I had not observed at length and these men I lived with for about six months. So you're bound to get good to excellent results. The mind does not ever forget. Not really, as you know. Upon this, I suggest this way of doing this with myself, but further the latter usage of myself in mannerism and thought illustration is suggested in order that the goal of inducing these men to place themselves at and under your disposal hypnotically or under truth serum is the goal the which could have far greater impact due to co-relation of experiences remembered hypnotically by men who have not seen or even written to each other at all for nearly or over 10 years. In this, with such men as witnesses, giving irrefutable testimony, it is my belief that were not the Navy, but the Air Force confronted with such evidence, i.e. chief of research, there would be either an uproar or a quiet and determined effort to achieve safely that which the Navy failed at. They did not fail to, I hope you realize, achieve metallic and organic invisibility, nor did they fail to unbesottedly achieve transportation of thousands of tons of metal and humans at an eye's blink speed. Even though this latter effect of prolonged experimentation was to them the thing that caused them to consider the experiment as a failure. I believe that further experiments would naturally have produced controlled transport of great tonnages at ultra-fast speeds to a desired point the instant it is desired, through usage of an area covered by one, those cargoes, and two, that field that could cause those good ships or ship parts men were transported as well, to go to another point accidentally and to the embarrassed perplexity of the Navy, this has already happened to a whole ship, crew and all, 
I read of this and the off-base AWOL activities of the crewmen, who were at the time invisible. A Philadelphia newspaper under narco-hypnosis, I can be enabled to divulge the name, date, and section and page number of that paper and the other one. Thus, this paper's morgue will divulge even more positive proof already published of this experiment. The name of the reporter who skeptically covered and wrote of these incidents, of the restaurant barrel raid while invisible and of the ship's sudden AWOL, who interviewed the waitresses, can thus be found. Thus, his and the waitress's testimony can be added to records. Once on this track, I believe that you can uncover considerably more evidence to sustain this. What would you call it? Scandal or discovery? You would need a Dale Carnegie to maneuver these folks into doing just as you wish. It would be cheaper than paying everyone of all these witnesses and much more ethical. The idea is to the layman type of person utterly ridiculous. However, can you remember all by yourself the date of a newspaper in which you saw an interesting item more than five years ago? Or recall names of men, their phone numbers that you saw in 1943-44? to I do hope you will consider this plan. You will progress as not possible in any other way. Of course, I realize that you would need a man who can cause people to want to have fun to play with hypnotism. One that can thusly those he you need to, number one, come to his demonstration and thus call on them to be either or both honored as helpful with, with the show and for doing him a great favor and or being part of the act for the might of a small fee. He would have to be a man of such an ingenuity at manufacturing a plausible story on the instant he sizes up his personality to be dealt with that the ability to convince people of an outright lie as being the absolute truth would be one of his prime prerequisites. <laughs> yes, some skullduggery would have to be thought well out and done. The ultimate end will be a truth too huge, too fantastic to not be told. A well-founded truth backed up by proof positive. I would like to find where it is that these sailors live now. It is known that some few people can somehow tell you a man's name and his home address under hypnosis, even though never having ever met or seen the person. These folks have a very high or just high PSI factor in their makeup that can be intensified under stress or strain or that usually is intensified under extreme fright. It also can be re-intensified by hypnosis. Thus is like reading from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Even though the barroom restaurant raid was staged by invisible or partly invisible men, those men can see each other. Thus names in the excitement were sure to have been mentioned. Whether last or first names or nicknames, a check of the naval yard's dispensaries or hospital of aid stations or prison records of that particular day that the barroom restaurant occurred may reveal the exact names of precisely who were the men, their service serial numbers, and thus the information on where they are from be secured, and by adroit maneuvering of those still at home. The name of that place where they are at present can be secured. How would you like to actually speak to or some of the men a man who was once an invisible human being may become so in front of your very eyes if he turns off his hip set. Well, all this fantastically preposterous sort of rubbish will be necessary. Just to do that, the hypnotist slash psychologist and all that 
may I suggest something too thorough and too methodical for you to taste, but then I, as first subject, don't care to be hypnotized at all, but to feel that certain pull of curiosity about this thing that to me is irresistible. I want to crack this thing wide open. My reasons are simple. To enable more work to be done upon this field theory. I am a stargazer, Mr. Jessup. I make no bones about this, and the fact that I feel that if handled properly, IA presented to people in science in the proper psychologically effective manner, I feel more that man will go where he now dreams of being to the stars via the form of transport that the Navy accidentally stumbled upon, to their embarrassment, when their EXP ship took off and popped up a minute or so later on several hundred sea travel trip miles away at another of its berths in the Chesapeake Bay area. I read of this in another newspaper. Only by hypnosis could any man remember all the details of which paper, date of occurrence, and etc. You see? Uh, Perhaps already the Navy has used this accident to transport to build your UFOs. It is a logical advance from any standpoint. What do you think? Very respectfully, Carl Allen. Alright guys, so that is the Alande Letters crazy. Come on. You have to admit it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So in my presentation in part one, I talk about a a time where William Moore, the author of the book Philadelphia Experiment Project Invisibility, goes and actually tracks down uh, Carlos Alande. And in a letter from Alande to Moore, he goes on and describes a little bit more about what his knowledges of the situation with the, the Philadelphia experiment. So here's that letter. This is nowhere near as long as the Alande letters, uh, but this is something, something more uh, that I do, that I do talk about in part one. So I'll go ahead and put that out there for you guys. So you want to know about Einstein's great experiment, eh? You know, I actually shoved my hand up to the elbow into this unique force field as that field flowed surging powerfully in a counterclockwise direction around the little experimental Navy ship, the DE-173. I felt the push of that force field against the solidness of my arm and hand outstretched into its humming, pushing, propelling flow. I watched the air all around the ship turn slightly, ever so slightly, darker than all the other air. I saw after a few minutes a foggy green mist arise like a thin cloud. I think this is... This must have been a mist of atomic particles. I watched as, therefore, the DE-173 became rapidly invisible to human eyes, and yet the precise shape of the keel and underhull of that ship remained impressed into the ocean water as it and my own ship sped along somewhat side by side and close to inboards. Yes, today I can tell it, but then who cares? In trying to describe the sounds that the force field made as it circled around the DE-173, 
It began as a humming sound, quickly built up to a humming whispering sound, and then increased to a strong sizzling buzz, like a rushing torrent. The field had a sheet of pure electricity around it as it flowed. This flow was strong enough to almost knock me completely off balance and had my entire body been within the field, the flow would have most absolute certainly have knocked me flat on my own ship's deck, as it was my entire body was not within that force field when it reached maximum strength density, repeat, density, and so I was knocked down but my arm and hand was only pushed backward with the field's flow. Why was I not electrocuted the instant my bare hand touched that sheet of electricity surrounding the field flow? It must have been because I was wearing hip-high rubber sailor boots and a sou'wester coat. Naval ONR scientists today do not yet understand what took place that day. They say the field was reversed. Scientific history, I later came to realize, was made for the first time that day. So that is the first contact uh, that William Moore made with Alande. That is a personal letter, a response to William Moore. The next part that we're going to go over is this official document from the Department of the Navy. This is in response to anybody's inquiries on the Philadelphia experiment. This is what you get. This is the exact document, and I can, you know, as a lot of people who have listened to the show know that I am a veteran of the Navy, I have seen this letterhead hundreds of times. This is very familiar to me. All right, letterhead. Department of the Navy, Office of Information, Washington, D.C., dated 23 July, 1976. Over the years, we have received innumerable queries about so-called Philadelphia Experiment, or Project, and the alleged role of the Office of Naval Research, ONR, in it. The frequency of these queries predictably intensifies each time the experiment is mentioned by the popular press, often in the science fiction book. The genesis of the Philadelphia Experiment myth dates back to 1955 with the publication of The Case for UFOs by the late Dr. Morris K. Jessup, a scientist with a PhD in astrophysics and a varied career background. Sometime after the publication of the book, Dr. Jessup received a letter by Carlos Miguel Alande, who gave his address as RD number 1, Box 223, New Kensington, Pennsylvania. In the letter, Alande commented on Dr. Jessup's book and gave details of an alleged secret naval experiment in Philadelphia in 1943. During the experiment, according to Alande, a ship was rendered invisible and teleported to and from Norfolk in a few minutes, with some of the terrible after-effects for the crew members. Supposedly, this incredible feat was accomplished by applying Einstein's never-completed unified field theory. Alande claimed that he had witnessed the experiment from another ship, and that the incident was reported in a Philadelphia newspaper. Neither the identify of Alande nor that of the newspaper has ever been established. In 1956, a copy of Justice's book was mailed anonymously to Admiral Firth, the Chief of Naval Research. The pages of the book were interspersed with handwritten annotations and, and marginalia apparently made by three different persons as they passed the book back and forth among themselves. The notations implied a knowledge of UFOs, their means of motion, and generally the culture of ethos of the beings occupying these UFOs. 
The book came to the attention of two officers then assigned to the ONR who happened to have a personal interest in the subject. It was they who contacted Dr. Jessup and asked him to take a look at this book. By the wording and style of one of the writer's notations, Dr. Jessup concluded that the writer was the same person who had written him about the Philadelphia experiment. It was also these two officers who personally had the book retyped and who arranged for the publication in typewritten form of 25 copies. The officers and their personal belongings have left ONR many years ago, and we do not have even a file copy of the annotated book. The Office of Naval Research never conducted an official study of the manuscript. As for the Philadelphia experiment itself, ONR has never conducted investigations on invisibility either in 1943 or any other time. ONR was established in 1946. In view of present scientific knowledge, our scientists do not believe that such an experiment could be possible except in the realm of science fiction. A scientific discovery of such import, if it had in fact occurred, could hardly remain sacred for such a long time. I hope this provides a satisfactory answer to your inquiry. Sincerely, signed, Betty W. Shirley, Head, Research and Public Inquiries Section, U.S. Navy. In Part 1, I make reference to a New York Times article dated August 31, 1940. This is that article. Reports from Germany that the British are using a secret varnish on their bombing planes to make them invisible at night caused considerable comment and at least one novel explanation here yesterday. Joseph Dunninger, magician and mind reader, holds that their bombers are invisible because of a secret apparatus developed in England by Horace Golden, world-famous magician who died a year ago. The exact nature of this apparatus, said to make a plane in flight invisible either in day or night, was not disclosed by Mr. Dunninger, who asserted that he developed a similar apparatus in this country. Mr. Dunninger said he had demonstrated his apparatus, which made a model battleship invisible at the United States Department of the Navy in Washington. He declined to explain the principle on which it worked. With his apparatus, he said he could make a battleship completely invisible. The equipment for doing this would weigh only about one-tenth as much as the ship. He said he could see no reason why it could not be applied to airplanes. And for my very last reading on part 0.5, I have what many to believe is a legitimate photocopy of the article talking about the, the brawl with the invisible people at the tavern in Philadelphia. Um, here it is. Several city police officers respond to a call to aid members of the Navy Shore Patrol in breaking up a tavern brawl near the U.S. Navy docks here last night got something of a surprise when they arrived on the scene to find the place empty of customers. According to a pair of very nervous waitresses, the Shore Patrol had arrived first and cleared the place out, but not before two of the sailors involved allegedly did a disappearing act. They just sort of vanished in thin air, right there, reported one of the frightened hostesses. And I ain't even drinking either. At that point, according to her account, the Shore Patrol proceeded to hustle everybody out of the place in short order. A subsequent chat with the local police precinct left no doubts as to the fact that some sort of general brawl had indeed occurred in the vicinity of the dockyards at about 11 o'clock last night. But neither confirmation nor denial of the stranger aspects of the story could be immediately obtained. One reported witness, succinctly, 
summed up the affair by dismissing it as nothing more than a lot of hooey from them daffy dames down there, who he went on to say were probably just looking for some free publicity. Damage to the tavern was estimated to be in the vicinity of $600. Alright, well, that is all that I have for supporting documents in my part one to the Infinite Rabbit Hole's coverage of the Philadelphia Experiment. If you've listened to part one, you're here to listen to the supporting documents. As I said on the end of part one, part two is right around the corner. Two more weeks, people. And we are going to dive into a story associated with the Philadelphia Experiment that is just going to leave you breathless. I mean, this is this is some crazy stuff. I had to make this an, its own part. I just had to. I actually kind of tinkered with the idea of making it its own separate episode and titling it something different, but the tie is clear to the Philadelphia Experiment, so part two was the natural way of going with it. Anyways, thanks, travelers. I really do appreciate all your support for these last two and a half years, and I cannot wait to show you what's next. Until next time. I would like to thank you once again for tuning in to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. Please make sure to give us a follow and one of those beautiful five-star ratings on your podcast player of choice. If you would like to join the conversation and stay up to date on all things Infinite Rabbit Hole, head on over to Facebook and search for the Infinite Rabbit Hole Facebook group. You'll know it's us when you see the logo. I now do this show 100% all by myself. All editing, research, recording, and planning are done by me. The one thing that sucks about that is the cost to get this content out to you. Subscriptions for editing, recording software, new hardware, and research books all come directly from donations and my pocket. So if you would like to help contribute to the cause, there are a few ways to do so. First, head on over to anchor.fm forward slash infinite rabbit hole and click on the subscribe button where for $5 a month, you'll get access to all of our old episodes that will never see the free spotlight ever again. It's horrible stuff. But if you're into that kind of thing, then check it out. Second, head on over to InfiniteRabbitHole.com and click on the IRH Merch Shop tab and grab yourself a sweet t-shirt, sticker, or whatever else you see that you wouldn't mind owning. Until next time, travelers, I'm Jeremy, and I'll see you at the next four in the path of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Goodbye.